The other thing is the tattooing, that we should place the tattoo three centimeters far from the lesion. Otherwise, the liquid of the tattoo can go nearby the lesion and most of the time is going under the lesion. And it means that if I finally want to perform an ESD, my plane, the third space, will be full of black things and I won't be able at all to understand the planes. This means for me more difficulties, but this means for the patient more chance to get perforation. Oh gosh. So more pictures, less tattooing. Yes. Hi everyone. Welcome back to Endocast with your host, Leslie Bishop. This is episode 15 with our physician guest, Roberta Maselli from Humanitas Research Hospital in Milan, Italy. Indocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Dr. Maselli, welcome to Indocast. Hello, good morning. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here with you. Thank you. I'm happy too. Thanks for taking a little bit of time out of ESGE to come share all your wisdom with us. We're excited to learn a lot about your journey with ESD specifically. Let's start with how you got into GI and then move into how you then decided to do ESD. So my story is a little bit different from, let's say, all the other story maybe, because I was trained as a surgeon. And during my residency, because it's so difficult to become a surgeon from a lot of things, mainly because I was a female, and I am a female, I was not only a pretend. And uh, there were so many people that were willing to learn surgery, so there was no space for me, honestly. Wait, are you saying that they had a bias against you because of being a female? They didn't want to allow female surgeons? Yeah. So you were allowed to enter in the specialty because that one is a formal way to enter in. But at the same time, then, when you go to practice, uh, the men were more, not able, but they were more pushed to, to make procedure and to really understand and do surgery. So all our, my colleagues who are the females, they were there in the background, helping, waiting for their moment, but that specific moment was never around, uh, arriving. So at the time there was this doctor that he was performing basic endoscopy and uh, he needed help. And I said, okay, I will move to him and I will learn something really because I'm a practical woman. I, I like to think something in practice. I don't want just to speculate or to make philosophy. I like philosophy, but at the same time, I want to really make procedure. And I was lucky because I used to say that you can't do anything by yourself. I mean, in your pathway, in your way, you, you need to be lucky. But you, the right moment is not knocking on your door. If you're just staying in the room, you must be in the flow. You must do something to let the good things come to you. And at that time, I was so lucky because they invited me to a nice congress, one of the biggest in Italy, that can you believe is the same congress that after five years, I was the course director of that congress. No. Five years later? Yes. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. Yeah, I thought it was a nice story. And on that congress, and was there just as a resident, I saw this doctor from Japan, and I really honestly felt in love with him. I mean, from, from a, just a working point of view, a job point of view. And I said, that one must be my mentor, because I was looking for a mentor. And this is, I think, a very key point to, to try to aspire to success, to, to make your dream possible. 
you need to follow somebody else that is already doing the thing that you want to do. And uh, I simply wrote an email to him saying, I saw you in a Congress, I was so inspiring by you that I'm just asking to you if I can have the chance to come to your place for six months and just observe. And he said, you're welcome. And how much GI experience had you had at that point? Fortunately, again, I was lucky that surgery in Italy is a six-year six um, fellowship. So I was in the fourth year at that time, and I was able to perform basic endoscopy, like gastroscopy, colonoscopy, small polyps, uh, nothing more than this, honestly. No PG, no ERCP, nothing than basic endoscopy. Okay, and what was it about this doctor that made you fall in, in professional love? Uh, the fact is that he was doing something great, but at the same time something new because he performed a poem, and it was uh, 11 years ago, maybe 12, and so we were really at the beginning of the third space endoscopy, and also an ESD. And this was something so new that it was, at the same time, close to surgery. I was able to see myself performing that procedure, and I said, I want to see if I will be able or not. I knew from the beginning that I wouldn't be allowed to do anything with him, so it was only an observership. But at the same time, I felt that that one was my chance to make a step forward and to try to make a difference. So, the entire time you were there, you never put your hands on the devices? Not for six months, but then, because he saw, maybe felt something, and he said, uh, if you stay six months more, I will give you the chance to really learn the procedure. Oh, wow. So finally, I spent one year with him in Japan. Okay, six months observing and six months hands-on. Yes. Okay. And, but believe me, also the first six months make the difference because I was not prepared for that experience because I was coming from a simple, basic center and I didn't know anything, honestly, about classification and all those very important stuff that you should know before performing procedure because, you know, the, the indication are very different and you must be able to understand which lesion deserve which type of procedure, mm -hmm. not just everybody wants to cut. But before cut, you need to understand how, but most of all, when to yes. cut. Yes. So the first six months gave me the chance to study, but it was like a dynamic study because I was uh, studying on papers and then in the same day goes in the endoscopic unit uh, and see all those doctors exactly doing the same things that I was seeing and studying in the papers. That is something unbelievable at that time in Italy and in Europe. Yes. Okay, so after this training, were you then able to bust through this glass wall and, and get, a, get a job at that point? No. What? <laughs> no, the story is a little bit complicated, but it's not focusing on third space because later on I spent seven months in India for ERCP. So finally, at the end of my residency, I was fully trained in endoscopy and operative endoscopy, but not really fully trained in surgery. But at the same time, my mind was still set on surgery or oh. about complication management. So I used to say that I am a pure endoscopist, operative endoscopist. I'm not a, a pure gastroenterologist. I'm not a pure surgeon. I'm something in between, something new. And my, my dream was to try to find a space in between these two specialties. So there's an overlap, and I'm completely in between the two. Yeah. So later on, what I need, again, was a mentor, an Italian mentor at that time, because I'm Italian and I'm still in Italy, fortunately for me. 
because again, you need the help of somebody else to, to push you and to pull you from, uh, from the uptown to, to him side or to her side. The fact is that at that time and still today, all of these um, person that can give you a chance, they are men. So I don't want to talk that and to say that always you need a man to arrive to a point, but you need somebody on that point to give you the chance to have an open door. Yes. And I was lucky to find my chief, that is still my chief, that was the director of that course we were talking of, that congress. Oh, wow. That saw me because uh, I have the, my curriculum all of my side uh, to, to talk with everybody, every possible person, even in the street, because I was looking for this chance. And because I was moving, you know, they, they saw me finally. So I'm actually curious about barriers in terms of developing ESD at your hospital? Were people pushing back against you bringing this procedure? Was the procedure already being done at your hospital? Were you getting support? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point because those barriers are present everywhere, <laughs> also in Italy and Europe. I was again lucky because in my hospital the ESD was already settled down, so I was already able to perform them. But at the same time, I know these barriers because I'm doing mentorship in a lot of different hospitals in Italy and uh, they come to me with this type of uh, barriers and I try to find with them the, the space and the way to, to try to overcome them. One of the main ones for sure is the reimbursement. I mean, uh, from a doctor point of view, it's strange to talk about <laughs> money and reimbursement because we should talk only about, you know, how to uh, perceive the wellness of people and the healthness of people. But at the same time, it's part of our job. And we are still on the way to let the system understand that what we are doing is something much more aggressive and costly compared to standard endoscopy but also the complication can be different. So we, we must arrive in a point where we will have an awareness from different point of view. Doctors, there are still endoscopies all around the world that they don't know how to, when is the case to let the, this, that patient be treated by a more aggressive endoscopic treatment. And so they still make mistakes. The awareness uh, from the patient point of view that they come to an ESD as it was or a big surgery or a simple endoscopy. Again, it's nothing. It's something in between these two limits, but also about time of endoscopy. I mean, uh, we need a very long slot because we are doing surgical procedure endoscopically and also it's time consuming from the energy point of view. So we should be treated and act as surgeons, as endoscopic surgeons, and still we are considered as a service. I start the training with POEM, so the myotomy for achalasia, rather than ESD, because in that way, even the settings is different. You have the patient that is intubated, so you are more relaxed, you are calm, you have somebody else that is taking care of all the settings of the room. And most of all, unless you have very difficult achalasia uh, patients, the procedure is exactly the same. So you can learn a methodology and doing all the time the same steps. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so then you get familiar with the devices, not only you, but also your staff. This is not a one-woman show, DSD, <laughs> but this is a staff procedure. So when I, try, when, I, when I start making 
the mentorship in our hospital, I used to say that even if I'm there with them, they can't perform ESD with me as a tutor on their, on their shoulder. But when they are alone, they must start just with one step. It means, for example, make the circumferential incision and then snare that lesion. Because you have that the nurse get familiar also as you with the devices, with the time, with the type of complication. And so we must do it gradually, step by step. That's some good advice, especially for somebody getting started. It's very good. So do you find that you're able to, because I'm sure you want the procedures too, but you have to also think, is this patient best for ESD or is this patient best for EMR or should they go to surgery? How are you determining that? Both of the group, the endoscopy and the surgeon, know how skilled the other group is. So really it's not so difficult to understand who will do the procedure. Then all the time that you have the lymph nodes, there's the oncologist there. It's no more your time. We'll see in, in the future. So going back to the referral question, what things do you wish some of these referring physicians weren't doing? Like, are they doing certain things that are making the ESD more challenging? This is for beginners or for... This is just like a doctor who's sending you a patient. Mm -hmm. You know, are they like doing things that's, ma that's making it harder to perform the ESD in terms of what they're doing okay. on the policy? Okay, so what I hate to find uh, yes, in the... in the are you, like, annoyed by? <laughs> for sure. I don't know in the rest of the world how it is, but in Italy we have very different settings. And sometimes the patient comes to you with a report of endoscopy without an image. And this is the worst scenario everywhere because you are not able to see the lesion. And before schedule, you should again perform a colonoscopy to understand with your eyes how to schedule that patient, for what, for how long. So that one is the first thing. Please take images, the, the, the more you can, the best, honestly. Yes. Because then also to classify the morphology of the lesion is not so easy as we think. We see and we read the paper, we saw the presentation, uh, granular type, mixed type, nodular type, but it's not so easy, definitely, when you are there in real time with, with a column that is moving. So please take pictures. The other thing is the tattooing. That we should place the tattoo three centimeters far from the lesion. Otherwise, the liquid of the tattoo can go nearby the lesion and most of the time is going under the lesion. And it means that if I finally want to perform an ESD, my plane, the third space, will be full of black things and I won't be able at all to understand the planes. This means for me more difficulties, but this means for the patient more chance to get perforation. Oh gosh. So more pictures, less tattooing. Yes, <laughs> and if possible, less biopsy. But at the same time, they are making a lot of noise about fibrosis done by biopsies. If you take one biopsy, nothing will happen. So if you are not so experienced and you want to make a diagnosis and you think that a part of that lesion is really suspected for invasive cancer, take that biopsy. It's not important, but just one or two, no more than this. Otherwise, I will have fibrosis for sure. <laughs> and at the same time, so try not to take biopsy, take it only if you really need. If we are talking about lesion on IBD, please take biopsy because we can have some macroscopic appearance of dysplasia that is not. So we need to confirm of histological specimen that is a dysplasia that want to proceed with the resection. Okay. Otherwise I have to make again a colonoscopy and take the biopsy. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs>
All right, let's talk a little bit about complications. So what are the complications you're seeing the most and how are you treating those? So the, we have three main complications for ESD. That is uh, from the worst and the more common to the more uh, safe, let's say. We have the perforation, the bleeding, but also the post-ESD um, electrosurgical syndrome. That means that burning effect that we can have in the muscularis propria can make it, uh, I don't know how to say, uh, burnt. <laughs> so the fact is that the tissue will react uh, as an inflammatory reaction. That means for the colon, some symptoms that can cover a perforation or can mimic a perforation. So it's difficult to understand when you have a delayed perforation or a peaks. I'm not talking about intraprocedural uh, complication because that's how you can have bleeding and perforation the same, but I assume that you must be able to treat them intraprocedurally, otherwise it's better that you're not starting performing <laughs> ESD. I'm talking about everything that is uh, sh that shows after you retract the endoscope from the patient. That can start from fever, abdominal pain, that could be only dyspexed, so and local reaction that will go alone just with some antibiotics, intravenous fluids, and resting of the patient, fasting of the patient mainly, and later uh, delayed perforation. Delayed perforation, again, is not very common, uh, fortunately. What about delayed bleeding? Delayed bleeding is a little bit more common, and this is why this is a very difficult question. <laughs> Yeah, because you know that delayed perforation and intraprocedural complication is something that depends on you. The delayed bleeding does not depend on you. It depends on very different factors. The size of the lesion, the treatment that the patient has stopped and has to resume, like antiplatelets, anticoagulants. So factors that they will for sure affect the, the healing and the chance of bleeding of that patient, but you cannot handle doing something that hope. What we can do is make some prophylaxis of bleeding. So we started uh, in years, uh, make all the hemostasis of the single vessel that we saw in the submucosa after resection. But that one was not really working in all the cases. I mean, that was difficult to stratify those patients that will bleed and the one who will not. Somebody is, uh, is trying to close all the defect, for example, to prevent both bleeding, but also perforation. But still, it's not clear when we have to really close or not. For sure, we have some stratification of the risk, and we know that right colon resection in general, not only ESD, but also EMR, we should try to close it. But at the same time, sometimes the closure is not so easy because it depends on the size. So the bigger the size, the more difficult the closure. And then also there depends on the device you have in your hands to try to close it. So there's a lot of factors that might be, might be taken into account when to decide if to add some prophylaxis for the complication or not. Okay. And talking about closure, do you normally close? Do you not normally close? No, this is what I was trying to say, that really I try to put in my personal algorithm all these factors together. Also, the how, how much fragile is the patient, how old is the patient, how big is the lesion, how much time did I spend in taking out that lesion, and how much was bleeding intraprocedurally. So putting all together, sometimes I close them, sometimes not. 
So it kind of depends. I like that. I like that. <laughs> I want to move a little bit away from ESD and talk to you about women in endoscopy and in surgery. It's obviously, there's very few women doing therapeutic work. And I'd love to hear your perspective on this, especially in your country where there are certain limitations for women when they're pregnant and things like that. Ha! Difficult <laughs> point again. <laughs> so the fact is that from the Italian rules, I don't know exactly in all the European countries, but I heard that there are some, some place where it's the same. I think it might be because I, after I yeah. heard this, I asked around yeah. to some other physicians and other countries have these same, the United States does not. So this was totally yeah. new information to me. Yeah. So you do something different on those months, uh, like for example, outpatient clinics, uh, research or everything that where you don't perform endoscopy basically. And as we were mentioning before, you know, that this, that decade, basically from 30 to 40, when is the, the best one to achieve your, your success in the term you want. That for a woman can be both from the work point of view, but also from a family point of view. And somehow you, you are pushed to choose which the two, because it doesn't mean that you won't be trained at all. I'm not saying this, but the fact is that because you have to leave for some time, for some months, and the male compound will not, when you will come back, you will have somebody else that is much farther than you. And you have to rush much more and uh, you have to put a lot of strength if you really want it, more than the other people. How will women ever advance? Because that's gonna be an obstacle if it's, a, if it's a legal thing. Do you see a way around that for more women to go into advanced endoscopy? I'm looking for it. <laughs> so I, I don't have this answer right now. What I can say is that it's a, it's a difficult world for women. It's a difficult world for everybody. For women more, and uh, you really must want it. And if you want it, you can achieve it. And uh, like the few people, as female mentors that you can find. We are few because uh, we are trying to train the new generation. And fortunately, they can have a female mentor right now that at that time, it was impossible because you were able to find a mentor for your academical point of view. I mean, from a female perspective, academical point of view, or uh, for example, the study delivery or whatever in GI, but not for therapeutic endoscopy. Fortunately for them, now we are here. I, I must admit that I can be a female mentor. So they can try to look at me and see if what they see, they like it. And at least they can say there's somebody there. And if she make it, I can make it, why not? And this is what really, you know, I think every time I see and I'm facing with a difficult procedure, I think two things. One is that I'm the only one in this unit that I can do this, even if it's not true. I mean, I'm the full responsible of that procedure. I must make it. And the second thing is that if the other people, and in that case, the Japanese doctor are making, why am I not able to? I should, and I must do it. Oh my gosh, I love that. Okay, well, that is a great place to close. And this has been, this has been fantastic. I've just loved chatting with you and thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Indocast. Please subscribe to the podcast and follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn feeds. 
You can also visit our virtual education platform, EduCare. That's E-D-U-C-A-R-E dot bostonscientific.com and choose gastroenterology. The site features over 180 resources, including physician-led educational videos, lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every case or patient. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote or encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases as individual results may vary. Thank you.